I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me, at this point you might qualify as an old friend, we've known each other for a while, Daniel Kleinman. He is an early stage venture investor at the Explorer One Fund. He and the fund invest in companies that are fundamental to the success of the new space economy. He was a guest on Capital Club recently, and we've already traded a couple introductions. I think one of the guys that works with me is going to be with you all at South by Southwest in March. So I feel like we know each other pretty well, though we keep missing each other when you're in town. But thank you for for coming on and talking to us. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're I'm either having you know, late nights eating hot chicken and missing you or <laughs> getting snowed in from snowstorms in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, my my social life is not what it used to be with the kiddos, but it's awesome to have you on. And, you know, space has become something that is not just this conceptual investment uh, opportunity. I mean, it's here now, right? We're seeing this with Virgin and SpaceX and, and you all have some DNA with those groups. So, you know, I don't want to do just like the bio pitch background, but could you maybe weave in your story with with how it got you to where you are today, with which is investing into the space economy? Sure. I was always just sort of interested in innovation and sort of disruptive technology that fundamentally changes the way we, we live and we view the world. So after business school, I was actually in Dallas for four years managing a single family office where uh, I set up the early stage venture strategy. I was doing mostly uh, biotech and healthcare and some enterprise software, and that was that was really interesting. We did a bunch of cool stuff, but I uh, I saw sort of this like exponential increase in space companies at you know incubators like Y Combinator and, and some of the other ones around around the country, and I just sort of thought to myself, like, what's happening here? And then I saw you know 
who I knew was the best person in space, which was a family friend of mine who used to be the head of NASA. And he, he connected me to my now team. But at the time, I was just sort of getting my feet wet. So I'm relatively new to space, but I just rely on, on my team who are the guys who spent 32 years at NASA and the aerospace engineers at Blue Origin and Boeing. So yeah, it's been it's been an exciting journey to get to space and just the beginning in space. So the way I think about it, and I, and you can push back on this, the analogy I draw is kind of like how DARPA, quote unquote, invented the internet. Yeah. And it was a it was a government enterprise for a very long time. And that it became privatized and commercialized. Is that a fair parallel to draw with what we're seeing play out in the space investment world? I think to paraphrase, uh, you know, NASA used to be the provider of launch capabilities of space stations. And now they've transitioned to be the customer and sort of, you know, step back and allowed what is probably like the U.S.'s most competitive advantage, which is our private innovation uh, and private companies to speed up the development of new launch vehicles um, and new areas within space. And that natural competition has resulted in companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX and Rocket Lab and ABL. And it's ushered in this new wave of launch providers that have now made it possible to get the space for a lot cheaper and a lot more reliable than it was once was. So, you know, actually a lot of credit to the U.S. government and and NASA as a U.S. uh, government agency to step back and recognize that, you know, being the provider isn't uh, always the most efficient thing to do and becoming a customer was a lot better. So (laughs) it's hard not to use cliches here. This is so problematic for me, but what's the right way to approach investing into this infrastructure? Are we talking about launch capabilities? Are we talking about things that are actually in orbit? I mean, there's probably a ton of verticals and buckets, but how do you, obviously it's a vast world and a, and a burgeoning infrastructure. How do you think through where to put the money at this point in time, call it you know, 2022? Yeah, so I I can sort of step back a little bit and provide a little bit more context about the way we sort of view the new space economy. And that might provide helpful color to then how we think about the investable opportunities. But I I sort of say that the new space economy was started in in 2017 when uh, SpaceX achieved reusability with their launch vehicles. So it used to cost you in the tens of thousands of dollars per kilogram to send some to space. And we always use the analogy, you know, internally, like don't throw away your airplane when you fly across country and have it be one-time use. So why would we do that with our rocket to space? And once we figured out how to re-land that rocket, we could amortize the cost of a launch vehicle across multiple flights and exponentially drive the cost down to like, you know, in the high hundreds of dollars per kilogram. And that, that really opened up the doors to send more assets Space. And then coupled with the fact in the advent of like microelectronics, where satellites used to be the size of school buses and now they're the size of shoe boxes and used to cost, you know, half a billion dollars to build one, but now you can make one for half a million dollars. So those are the two really like driving factors for what we define as the first wave of space. Uh, and it's resulted in 
sort of experts believe there's going to be a, a 150,000 satellites in orbit over the next five, seven, ten years. And we simply don't have the infrastructure up there to support it. And that's really what the second wave of space is and sort of the area that I guess we're now investing into or the, the industry is investing into, which is building an infrastructure and orbit to be able to support all the volume of satellites and assets up there. And that looks like, you know, refueling hubs for satellites, data relay systems, you know, in-space transportation. So it's a lot cheaper to get a launch vehicle to uh, a lower Earth orbit versus a geo. And then you just sort of take that asset and move it. So moving things around. And then even things like space debris management, um, you know, traffic management in orbit will become a big thing. So that's what we think is like really the short-term opportunity. Behind that, we sort of think of it akin to like the iPhone and the App Store, like Android and, and apps where you have this infrastructure and then new emerging applications begin to show up on top of that. And that is where the third wave is and really some of like the really large opportunities in space. So manufacturing in orbit, server farms in orbit, energy in orbit, you know, full-scale space tourism where you have hotels, livable structures. That That's a little bit further out, but still at least investable for us today. And then adjacent to that is the lunar economy. So the, the, so the hope of industrializing the, the moon and using it as a way to, I mean, the moon is just one big rock. So we want to mine it want to do a bunch of stuff on the moon that we wouldn't do on earth that we could use so we could potentially make rocket fuel from the minerals the gas in the lunar surface and use that to refuel a launch vehicle instead of bringing it back down and taking it out of earth um, so those are like the four waves so where we invest or what you know other firms invest sort of across those waves in in use cases or problem statements that we that we see fit and to what extent are these de novo firms or de novo companies trying to play in this economy versus these old line firms that are just like a Boeing or, or some of these, you know, more known names, just trying to kind of use the applications they already have in, in, on earth into space. So Boeing, Northrop, some of the prime contractors, I mean, they've, They've been active in space for, for many years, providing services to the U.S. government, sort of satellites or launch vehicles. So they're, they're heavily interested and active in the new space economy. We, you know, we still sort of believe that the U.S. government will, is largely the main customer for the short term in the new space economy. Because they're some of the prime contractors, they will also be some of those customers. And, you know, they may, their nature has been to acquire, um, to grow. That may play out in, in the new space economy as well. I guess a, a more broader theme that we think about is like space for Earth versus space for space. So space for Earth is, you know, sending stuff up that will benefit Earth sending stuff up that looks down on earth and a lot of that is tied to you know the u.s government prime contractors firms that are buying data around you know agriculture to optimize precision farming or looking at maritime traffic data to figure out how to optimize supply chain path or detecting gas pipeline leaks or you know using 3d renders to figure out the depth of, of mines and deposits what have you 
We think those the U.S. government and the prime contractors will likely still play a pivotal role as customers in that. Once you get the space for space, which is like you know, a nuclear or a reactor company on the moon that's producing you know, part of the supply chain necessary to build rocket fuel and is selling that to a SpaceX, you know, then you have new space company selling to new space company, potentially in the billions of dollars where those other firms, unless they sort of position themselves to participate in that, will become potentially less relevant. Yeah. One of the interesting things you brought up at Capital Club was this heavy industry, you know, polluting type economies will will go off Earth, right? And, and that will really be a bifurcation of, of things that, to your point, that we should not be doing or would not be able to do, you know, in in on the ground will essentially all take place in space itself, which is a really, I'd never thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, there's no atmosphere there. So it's, it, but obviously there's a lot to happen between now and there, but are you starting to see people really move that ball forward and, and see infrastructure that, that people are, are looking to put to work today? Oh yeah. I mean, earlier this week we met with two different companies that are trying to build factories in orbit and they have planned launches, you know, in within the next 12 months. And, and just like, I guess, you know, for, for the listeners to reiterate, there's sort of this school of thought. Well, there's really two schools of thought that are being driven by the two large private new space companies. There's Elon, who wants to go to Mars and build an insurance policy for humankind. And then Bezos, um, where he sort of got it from, I think he cites Gerard O'Neill, who, who was a, a physicist, that basically says, you know, Earth ought to be zoned light and residential, and then space ought to be zoned heavy industry. And, and the idea being is that once launch costs are, you know, so cheap, we start moving anything that has a high, a really detrimental high carbon footprint on Earth to space. And that may take the form of factories, server farms, landfills, and there's just certain benefits in orbit and in space that you have that Earth doesn't provide. From an ESG perspective, as you mentioned, there's no atmosphere. So, you know, space, as my colleagues always say, is a radioactive wasteland. So you're not really hurting it anymore because it's just, it's not meant for humans to live in. And the zero gravity provides a lot of benefits. So if you think about like manufacturing in orbit, if you want to manufacture, you know, super alloys, the heavy metals don't fall to the bottom. On Earth, they do. You can sort of bend them and, and mold them in whatever way. And so it'll be like high price points, low volume goods initially. But once you get scale, it'll be full flow like productions. And we get this question, like these are like dark factories, like no humans, you don't really need them. Um, and there's also endless access to energy from the sun. So solar is sort of uh, di- diluted, for lack of a better term, on, on Earth because of day-night atmosphere and weather. In space, you can position a, a you know factory where it has 24/7 solar energy beaming at it. We cannot achieve carbon neutral on Earth without leveraging space. Like it, it just it's impossible. So we can do all we want to move to renewable energy, but we're going to have to move stuff with high carbon footprint off Earth. And then once we sort of patch all the holes at the bottom of the ship, we can start fixing the ship, which is the idea of pulling carbon from the atmosphere. And there's a lot of work that's going into and research to carbon capture technologies, whether it be a constellation of satellites or, you know, launch vehicles that can figure out a way to do so. 
So that's super interesting. And then we always talk about internally, which is like, if it was free to send stuff to space, what would we do different? And like, we wouldn't have landfills. We just send all of our trash to the surface of the, su- of the sun to burn off. And the sun's just like one big nuclear reactor. So it's like, it's not really going to make an impact. And so you start to build this like, you know, really green, sustainable future vision of Earth, which is sort of what 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 we ascribe to. That all sounds great. But <laughs> as an investor, no, it does. I mean, I get it. it it's it's utopian. And it's it's frankly encouraging to see these things in the works, because as a let's say a novice retail observer, you see these launches taking place and these celebrities. And then you look around on earth and you say, well, there's a lot of bad things going on. I'm not sure this is really helping any cause and this is a vanity play. So it's 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 encouraging to see this context, right? And, and, and to understand maybe what the end game might be, because I, I think they're, whoever's running their PR and the marketing is not doing a good job like you have of explaining what this is leading to potentially. But my, my question is, as an investor, some of these things are years out and you're you're kind of boiling the ocean a little bit in terms of these these ideas. How do you kind of narrow down into investable, investable thesis today? And what are actionable investments today that you're making? Yeah. So I think timelines are like probably the most important thing when you're investing in a brand new economy, whether you're investing in the new space economy and digital assets in sort of 2010 to 13 or behind the, the internet in the late 90s. So we think about timelines. You know, if we go back to the map that was painted, we think that, you know, that first wave of space has already had a lot of investments go into it. There's a number of, you know, companies, both private and public on the launch vehicle side and the remote sensing side. I think there's still opportunities there for some additional investments to be made in new remote sensing satellite constellation or some, you know, optimized launch vehicle architectures that um, are appealing and could sort of open up new markets. We think the infrastructure in orbit is a very investable area in the short term. And when we're talking about like Investments, revenue generating, cash flow generating, and you know potential exit and liquidity events within a five to eight year horizon. And then part of the emerging applications that I was referring to are, are here today: space manufacturing in high high quality, high price point, low low volume goods. It, it will happen over the next couple of years. And as I mentioned, you know you're going to have these. Um, Space factories being launched within the next 12 months that will be revenue producing. You have uh, server firm companies that are looking to build uh, in orbit. And the lunar economy. The lunar economy is something that we're very, very excited about. NASA is going back to the moon at the end of uh, this year. And there's the human landing system, which is uh, aimed to go back to the moon in 2025. So that is sort of where we see the investable areas. What we don't think is investable is um, we don't think asteroid mining is investable today. Some of the interesting concepts around beaming energy down from massive solar arrays in orbit and bringing energy back to Earth, that's probably non-investable right now. Um, but everything I've described, is there's a number of companies going after revenues in the short term and liquidities within sort of like the normal life fund cycle of a venture capital fund. I don't want to speak to your book necessarily, but could you give me a, an example of an investment the fund has made? Or, or And you don't have to name the name if you don't want to, but I'm curious, 
are these like early seed stage a round and then you know what do these exits look like and, and who is the ultimate liquidity for these type of companies we've invested in a number of companies and you know an example of a company we've invested in is a company that provides rocket engines to the rest of the market so they're a producer of uh, rocket engines to and they sell these to other launch providers sell to some large primes uh, they sell to a number of groups and these folks are part of the supply chain that is the launch vehicle market and they came out of some of the most notable private space companies today and you know they just raised a fairly large BRC round and we think there's a chance for a liquidity event in you know, over the next three or four years for example there's another company that we invested in that and you know a lot of this is out there in the news. Our name is sort of out there, but we did a space tourism company that has a balloon that takes uh, a capsule up to space. This is super interesting. And it's like sort of a six-hour journey up and down. They are, I believe, expected to have like first commercial launches within the next four years. And that's sort of the benchmark used to you know, potentially see uh, a liquidity event as well. Again, to try to draw a parallel here or an analogy, are there issues with what would be intellectual property on Earth with who actually owns it when it goes out of orbit and how this works on a geopolitical scale in terms of the other players that have access to space today? It's a great question. <laughs> My colleagues who spent 32 years at JPL will probably be better suited to answering that. But yeah, you know, there's, there's definitely a big question mark around sovereignty in orbit and in space. Who owns the moon? You know, is it humankind or whoever claims it? And uh, specifically around IP. So I guess one would have to assume that you would infringe on that IP or so you'd have to get access to that IP to make the infringement. So you'd have to somehow get a hold of that in space, which is very difficult. So I think that's part of the benefits of space is that sort of natural high ground that it's very difficult to get access to. But yeah, these are, you know, regulations will follow and you have sort of what is the Artemis Accords, it's a collection of uh, sovereign nations coming together, to try and set the standards for certain space activities collectively. And uh, it, it'll be exciting. It's a bit of a wild, wild west moment right now. What was it? The Artemis Accords? Is that something that's already been signed, or it's being negotiated? No, it's, it's, I believe it's been signed. Oh wow! Okay, interesting. I've got some homework to do here. So, if this is up cutting edge stuff, right, and you're on the vanguard of it, but if you're uh, an investor, what are some signposts that might be in the news, like the Journal, the New York Times, kind of the mass media that you digest, where it's a a catalyst, like a, a, a a inflection point where investing into space, the space economy will really kind of hit that J curve. Are there certain things that you're waiting for? Is it the the cost of these launchings that you're seeing? Is it other technology that's coming about? Are there things that we should be kind of keeping an eye out for that might kind of turn the table and make it a really exciting place to be? Yeah, one that stands out is definitely like the development of Starship, uh, which is SpaceX's uh, next launch vehicle. I believe it's uh, supposed to be able to carry 100 metric tons to space. And that would, I mean, Elon's quoted like tens of dollars per kilogram at that point to get access to space. That is 
you know, for reusability was the first inflection point with, with launch vehicles. A vehicle of that magnitude and that scale would be a, a second major inflection point for space, just because you'll be able to send up so much more at, at a reasonable price and open up the doors for a lot of those emerging applications that I was referring to, where you can start taking chances by building, you know, orbital habitats with spinning structures to create gravity. And right now, it just it's too expensive to do that. But with a launch vehicle, you could definitely do that of, of the scale that Starship is. So I think that's one. I think geopolitical tensions also play a part of it. There is like a race for space right now. And, you know, depending on, and the U.S. is always sort of like, you know, you think back to the Russia versus, you know, the U.S. trying to be the first to get to space. We'll probably see that on the moon and Mars as well. Um, and that might drive the U.S. to try and step up their innovation. But that's less predictable. And when you when you think about investing into these firms, when it comes to evaluating the human capital behind them, the teams, are there certain, I mean, you, you name NASA and JPL. Those are two names that I recognize. But are there other either private or government agencies where they're producing some pretty incredible talent that if you are evaluating a private offering that stand out to you as people that are you know super talented doing really cool things in this industry? Yeah. So, I mean, JPL has sort of been like the gold standard for um, robotics and development space for, you know, forever, basically. And there's other space you know, agencies within NASA that, that do similarly. I, I think with the new space economy, what people don't understand is SpaceX and Blue Origin have been around for almost 20 years. And I believe either Elon tweeted this or someone tweeted this recently that one of the greatest gifts that SpaceX will give to the world is not their launch capabilities or the internet, but it's the talent they produce. And we're seeing a lot of spin out from SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin, where, you know, for the first time in the history of the U.S., you've had uh, young entrepreneurs who have developed commercial reusable launch vehicles that work and deliver assets to space. And they're like, we know how to do this. Let's go start our own company and do it. And that's sort of amazing to see. And sort of like the Google effect or the Facebook effect where you have entrepreneurs or product managers or developers that have spent 10 years at Google go start their own company. So I, I, I'm very excited to watch that continues to play out. And then where it won't just be two companies in five years, but there you'll have, you know, maybe half a dozen to a dozen large, large private or public space businesses that have sort of been birthed from the new space economy that begin producing more and more of these talented entrepreneurs. What about on a global perspective? Same question, different vein. Are there certain other countries, like obviously Russia's got a longstanding space program, China, India, I think, has capabilities. I think there's a European conglomerate that also has capabilities to go into yeah, space. Yeah. yeah. Are those geographic areas also producing interesting private investments, or is it still government controlled in those areas? So you have, you know, there, space is universal, again, with the puns, but yeah, um, it's hard. Yeah. No, we've seen some great companies come out of places like the UK, you know, Australia, New Zealand. Israel, parts of Western Central Europe, some South American companies like Chile and Argentina. And they're, you know, if, if you're an investor and you're looking to get access to space, you can get, you can find some great companies in those geographies. 
going back and sort of tying into what we were discussing earlier about the, the U.S. government as being a customer, it, it makes it difficult sometimes if you are a company that sells to the U.S. government to be able to sell to other governments. And so if you're as an investor, you just have to be mindful of that. But this is also, you know, across not just space, defense, semiconductors are the same thing. If you're if you're investing in a semiconductor company that sells to the US government, you know, you're sort of limited in that and who else you can sell to. What's the biggest misconception in your opinion from an investor standpoint when they're looking at these type of deals in the space economy? It's gonna to take too long and too much capital. I mean, there's gonna be space factories this year in orbit. There's gonna be People are going to start building commercial space stations and what used to cost you hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to get a, a satellite number of satellites in orbit is not what it was once. What, what it was once was it was once. <laughs> and yeah, it, I think that's the number one misconception, which is, I guess, good for investors in the space today. And are the other, are there, you know, the Sequoias and Andreessen Horowitzes of the world? I assume that they've got space dedicated sleeves of capital they they've been definitely active i think i'd call it more opportunistically they've the tier one santo road investors have um made certain bets in space there's only a handful of space only focused like early stage vc funds what's really interesting is some of the institutional investors that have made their way down it's been a trend that they've come to the private markets the Fidelities, the Tigers, the Mavericks, the T Roads, the capital groups of the world have, I think they accounted for a large percentage of sort of all private spending or all private investing over the last year. You know, those folks are, have, have been active in space and a lot earlier than I think a lot of people expected. We know them well. We, we, we like to collaborate with them. I think, you know, given uncertain economic ties, it's good to have partners with the pockets that can support companies, um, you know, irrespective of the capital requirements of, of a company to be able to support them if, you know, interest rates change or if the capital markets freeze up. So the value proposition for a, you know, versioning firm like yourself, considering there are these big players in it, what is the pitch that you guys use? With those groups? <laughs> no, when you're when you're pitching an investor and that, that, L, that prospective LP knows that there are some of these bigger players involved and it's a huge, I mean, we just covered a lot of different areas of potential investments, you know, for a nimble group like yours, what's the value proposition? Space is like incredibly, incredibly technical. And I think you need the right mix of technical and investing backgrounds to be able to tackle it. I know we've been trying to use metaphors, sort of like, you're not going to have a biotech fund without an MD or a PhD on board. So you shouldn't have a space-focused strategy without leveraging technical expertise in it. And we're just we're very lucky to have at our firm, you know, Dr. Leon Alkali, who spent 32 years at NASA JPL, and then Dan Bowman, who's an aerospace engineer, spent time at Blue Origin and Boeing at MIT, and then myself and Phil, my, you know, our other partners. Basically, we bring the investment background, so it's it's that multidisciplinary approach that I think differentiates us, and it's what allows us to work closely with some of those institutional investors who they sort of lean on us for some of that technical expertise. It's cool stuff, man. <laughs> and it really is. It's it's so interesting to me. And it does feel like that this timing is there's there's a lot happening here, right? So I wish you the best of luck and I, I look forward to, to keeping abreast of all the developments you're making. If people listening or interested in, in learning about 
you and, and the fund and some of the investments they're making, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, just reach out on LinkedIn, Daniel Kleinman, uh, K-L-E-I-N-M-A-N-N, and then, or just shoot us an email at info at explore1fund.space. We're just always looking to connect with people who are excited about space. We we intentionally put out material on LinkedIn, just trying to educate the market and, and anyone interested in what's happening in the new space economy. We try and host space meetups in different cities, get people excited about space. And it's really just about the entrepreneurs in this in this new space economy. These guys are these girls and guys are just unbelievable and they've done an incredible job of building something special and we're just here to support them. Yeah, I can personally attest they're the network that these guys have are it's super impressive across the board. They've made some introductions for me. We had a great response to the Capital Club. So I definitely encourage people to reach out and just get on the distribution list and see what they're doing because it's really cool stuff and nothing else is very edifying into a industry that, you know, not a lot of us know too much about. So Daniel, I want to thank you for taking the time. I wish you the best of luck. And, you know, hopefully one of these times in Nashville, we can actually connect in person. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian. Really appreciate it. Have a good rest of your weekend. All right, man. Take care. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.